Good morning. Actually, Chris asked me a while ago to share a little bit, and I was very hesitant because it's hard to stand up here in front of you guys and be vulnerable and talk about yourself. Even worse if I cry. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, I'm going to pray for a sec. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that we can gather in your house this morning with your people as a family. Um, I pray that you would be high and lifted up this morning, Jesus. We love you. We praise you in your name. Amen. So sometimes people come up here and give their testimony, and they're like, it starts on the day I was born. And that's true for me. I stopped breathing the day I was born. So I always say every day after that has been a gift. That's not funny. That really did happen. But (laughs) I was born with a condition um, in my mouth, in my tongue specifically, that um, they didn't really know what it was when I was born. Um, They called it a lymphatic malformation, a lymphatic uh, lymphangioma, a hemangioma, a vascular anomaly, a tumor, more or less. Basically what that meant for me was I couldn't closed my mouth for like the first, I don't know, till I was three, three and a half, something like that. Um, I had my first surgery on my one-month birthday and had many surgeries after that. Um, grew up a hospital kid, had 33 surgeries before I was 18, I think. So spent a lot of time in the hospital with my family. It was like my home away from home. Knew all the doctors by their first name and stuff. Um And I guess one note on that is it's good that we pray for our babies to be healthy. I think of all our pregnant mamas in here um, in our church family. And it's good to pray for healthy babies. But I think sometimes it does us a disservice. What happens when your baby's not healthy? Um, Does that mean the blessing's not for you? Does that mean the Lord didn't hear your prayer? Um, but I would say that the, the Lord cares more about your character that's developed through those hard things than about you having necessarily an easy life. Um, there's a special kind of person that comes from being raised in a hospital or being around people that are sick a lot. I watched my sister. Um, she came to all my surgeries, all my appointments, all my everything, and just go right up to the kids' area and go play with all her friends that had you know, missing limbs and their faces were burned in fires or trachs or wheelchairs or whatever. Um, but anyways, their people would tell my mom maybe she didn't pray hard enough when I was when she was pregnant, or um, I had people pray over me that the devil would leave me. And as a little girl, hearing those things, you're like, oh my goodness, maybe the Lord doesn't care for me or maybe I I really he really did make a mistake or I don't know that was the feeling I had when I was a little girl like maybe there was something wrong with me but that's not true the Lord doesn't make mistakes everybody's um he says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made no matter how you come out so anyway I couldn't play sports and stuff but I really loved to sing my mom was a musician and had um she was on the radio and we had a recording studio growing up, so I loved to sing with her, even though I had a lisp and um, didn't always couldn't always sing well because I had a really big tongue and it would bleed and hurt and it was really painful and stuff. But that was what I loved to do. Um, 
But by the time I got to be, I don't know, 16, 17, I was just battling with a lot of pain. My tongue would get really swollen, and I would have to stay home, and I was really susceptible to getting sick because my tongue is has a lot of, like, open, I don't know, sores, blisters type things. So if anybody had a cold, I would get the cold. So I was home a lot, sick a lot. So when I was about 17, my doctor suggested this surgery where they essentially shave off the top layer of your tongue and I'm sorry if that's graphic but imagine being a 17 year old girl and hearing this is what we we think is the best thing for you is to shave your tongue it's like okay let's go they said um it could impair the way I speak it would most likely I wouldn't be able to taste or you know, I'd have to go to speech therapy. Singing was probably off the table and all these things. And I said, okay, if it would get me out of the pain that I was feeling, then I would do that. So um, I had the surgery. It was as horrible as you could <laughs> you could imagine. But that was not the Lord's plan for me to be done singing or speaking i would say i i did lose my taste for a long time which i hear there's this thing going around where you can lose your taste and smell i'm just kidding it came back for me hopefully it comes back for all you guys too um i guess i'm i i didn't know that the lord would use me to sing and i i guess my encouragement to you guys is sometimes the Lord gives us a thorn in your flesh that you think maybe the enemy has given me this, I don't know, this problem or maybe the Lord doesn't see me or he doesn't love me or he doesn't care for me the same as this person that seems to have it all together and they don't have problems or they're not hurting or they don't understand Um but I think about Paul a lot, and he prayed three times that the Lord would deliver him from that thorn. And it's good to pray that the Lord would deliver you from your thorns and your problems. But what about when he says no? I think it's maybe the Lord would say, you serve me better this way. Um, there's a there's a character development happening in you that I could only see going through this thing. You can only get to who I want you to be by going through this dark, hard thing. So my encouragement would be, I guess, maybe you have, you're going to have a limp like Jacob or a lisp like me, but serve him anyway. Love him anyway. He didn't make a mistake. God does not make mistakes. And he uses the hard things to um, further his kingdom for our good, for his glory. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and crack it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's some fine gentlemen along the back there with uh, Bibles. Get your Bibles so you can follow along. You guys, most of you know me, some of you don't. I'm Marcus Handy. I'm the youth pastor. I'm in here for Pastor Chris today who is not feeling well. So I'm sure he would appreciate some prayers. I'll just lead us in a prayer for him as we're getting those Bibles handed out. Lord, would you please bless Pastor Chris and Keep him by your Holy Spirit. Please give him rest and have him recover quickly from the illness that he's feeling. And um, In Jesus' name, amen. Now, ironically, well, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but I was not supposed to be here. I was supposed to be in a high school retreat that got canceled due to sickness in another part of the state. It wasn't on our part. It was uh, elsewhere. And uh, so I wasn't expecting to be up here, but uh, God had other plans. 
The Lord's will is always perfect. He gets you where he wants you to be at the right time. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Let's open our Bibles up. Um, what I'm going to do is just say a little prayer for the word. We're going to read through verses 29 through 39 of Matthew chapter 15. I have kind of a different Bible. I'm reading the NLT and the one, the Pew Bibles are, um, they're ESV. So if you have a different translation, that's going to count for why the word sounds different. Just on the subject of translations, I know there's a lot of people that really like different translations and hey, I don't want to criticize anybody's favorite translation. I see a lot of value in the King James. It's, uh, if you look at the Strong's Concordance, you want to dive in deeper to the Greek and the Hebrew meaning of words. That's an excellent translation to use. ESV is great because it's very, tries to, tries to be very faithful to the Greek text, especially the Hebrew as well, as, as much as it can being more, a more understandable English than maybe the King James is. And then the NLT I find is really understandable. And we use that in uh, junior high and high school a lot. And, and we do that. And it's not because people are dumb or anything. It's just we want, I want, I want people to get a sense of the text. And it's easier to move through it and have a, a general understanding. So anyway, if you have a favorite translation, great. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of a, a scope on these things. And uh, most of the time, if you're not sure about a translation, I know this is kind of a dog leg here, a little, little rabbit trail, but uh, come by it honestly. Anyway, um, rabbit trails at this church go back to the founding of the church, so... <laughs> So um, anyways, on translations, usually in the beginning of the Bible, there'll be um, some pages that people never read that tell you about the translation, you know, what the, what the scholars were trying to accomplish with that translation, you know, whether to make it readable or whether to be faithful or whether it was based on such and such a text, how they put language together. When you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what that refers to, etc. So I would just encourage you, if you have a Bible that you love, maybe read about your translation a little bit. Um, they all have their place. Um, some of them are really bad, <laughs> no, but not the ones that we read at this church. So, uh, <laughs> praise the Lord. All right, let me just say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into the words. So, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And I think of that high priestly prayer by Jesus where he says, uh, sanctify your people in your word. Your word is truth. That means set them apart. Make them different. Transform your people into something new by your word. And so that's what we, like Eric pointed out, that's what we, Lord, want to have happen. That's why we open your word. And God, thank you for your promises in your word that say that your word's going to go out. It's going to accomplish what you've purposed for it to do. Um, Lord, we take confidence in that. We take confidence in you. And we know your word is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And... Uh, provide the training, correction, sometimes rebuke, um, and encouragement that we all need. So uh, we look forward to hearing what your word has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm just going to read through the word here from verse 29 to 39, and then I'll circle back and try to give the sense. So here we go. Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill, and he sat down. And a vast crowd brought to him people who were lame and blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all. And the crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. 
The lame were walking and the blind could see again. And they praised the God of Israel. Then Jesus called the disciples and he told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been with me here for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. The disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? Sorry, I did that in kind of a grumpy voice. I don't know if that's how they they did it. (laughs) Um, Anyway, voice inflections, right? The disciples replied, oh, sorry, we read that already. Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? And they replied, seven loaves and a few small fish. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves and the fish and he thanked God for them and he broke them into pieces and he gave them to the disciples who distributed the food to the crowd. And they ate as much, sorry, they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were 4,000 men who were there who were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. Then Jesus sent the people home and he got into a boat and he crossed over to the region of Madigan. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is truth. Speak to us, Lord. Show us uh, what you want us to, to say. And I ask, too, for your Holy Spirit to be at work. If there's uh, specific applications for us or scriptures you want to bring to mind, Lord, I, I pray that you would be doing that. That's, that's something that you do. And um, make application. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this first little section in my Bible says Jesus heals many people. It's uh, verse 29 to 31. And I, I like it when I, when I look at it. Um, the first thing that came to mind when I was looking at this account of how Jesus healed all these people um, just on a random hill somewhere, man, I, I thought about um, this and it, it seems like when I read it, the things that stood out to me were there's a mini, kind of a mini sketch of the gospel. Maybe not complete, but it says he climbed a hill and he sat down. Man, I thought about how Jesus climbed that hill at Calvary. I mean, with the cross on his back, at least for part of it, um, says in John 19, um, this is uh, verse 16, the second half of verse 16 over to um, verse 20. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. And he went to a place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, which is Golgotha. And there they nailed him to the cross. And two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And uh, the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. And uh, so Jesus climbed a hill with a cross on his back. We know from the other accounts that the Romans had to grab a guy, Simon, um, the Cyrene, I think, to carry the cross with him um, because Jesus was too beat beat up to get it there. But he climbed a hill. And uh, why did he do that? Why did he climb that hill? Well, he did it to, um, as we read, to be crucified. But why? why was that God's purpose for him? He did it to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, in Isaiah 53, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Isaiah 53, and if you haven't caught, out, caught on by now, we're, we're going through the gospel. <laughs> it's good. It's good for believers to be reminded of the fundamentals of the gospel, and it's good for people that don't know the gospel to hear the gospel. 
So that's why we're going through this. You're not getting shortchanged right now. You're being encouraged. You're being stirred up by way of reminder. All right? So why did he climb the hill? He climbed the hill to fulfill the law and the prophets. So here is the prophets part. Um, the prophets part. Uh, this is Isaiah 53, verse 8. Um, speaking of Jesus. And I would encourage you guys to read the whole, the whole chunk of Isaiah 53 when you get some time. Very powerful. I can't read it all without crying, so I'm just going to read these few verses. But it underscores what, how he, uh, why he was going up that hill. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, and no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. I don't know if you caught that part, but um, when his life is made an offering to sin, he's crushed. That's speaking of his death. But then it says he will enjoy a long life. So how do those two go together? Well, the resurrection. The long life is eternal life. And his descendants aren't physical descendants because we know Jesus didn't have physical descendants. But his descendants are people, the sons and daughters of God, right? The sons and daughters of God that were adopted in Christ into the family of God. If you're a believer, you're his descendant in a spiritual manner. So um, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. For I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death and he was accounted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So why did he go? He went to uh, offer himself as a, a sacrifice for sin that was written of in the prophets. Right, that we just read Isaiah. He's one of the prophets. About six hundred years before his death, this detailed account. It's one of many in the Old Testament describing exactly what the Messiah would do. Uh, I saw an interview with um, uh, Dave uh, MacArthur and David Shapiro. David Shapiro is Jewish, and MacArthur's you know this pastor from Southern California. He's got a lot of notoriety. But one cool thing he said is he was trying to convert um, <laughs> Dave uh, Ben Shapiro. He said, "Look, I know who Messiah is." Because I know what's written in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew scriptures point to who Messiah is, right? That's how I know who Messiah is. Of course, you know, Ben didn't, didn't uh, engage, but uh, should have. Um, but we know that uh, there's a partial blindness upon Israel until the time of the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. So all that to say, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. The, the law that, um, if you go back to Leviticus, it specifically dealt with sacrifice Right. In order to be close to God, you had to deal with sin. And, and in, during the, the Levitical system, the, the law, um, they had to bring bulls and goats and they had to some, put their hand on their head, symbolically transfer their sin to the animal and the animal died in their place. Right. So as uh, John the Baptist said in um, John one twenty nine, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus climbed this hill with a cross on his back. He was crucified to fulfill the law and the prophets. And um, the Bible says the result of that, and that this is echoed in Isaiah 53, but um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin 
that we might become the righteousness of God. If you think about it, think about um, maybe there's a big party. It's kind of a sketch. It might be dumb. I'll just say it. There's a big party and you can't get in because you're, you're homeless and you don't have, you know, you don't have black tie. And uh, this is a big, big event. You really want to go, but you stink and your clothes are filthy. And somebody walking by who is, you know, maybe the guest of honor um, looks at you and he says, hey, you want to go to the feast? And you're like, I can't go. Look at me. And he goes, here, take my clothes. Take my clothes. And I'll take yours. And you can go into the feast, right? So symbolically, that's what Jesus did for us. He gave us his righteousness. He took upon himself our sinfulness. And that's why he went to the cross. Like I said, we'll just return to the text. I was reminded of uh, the gospel. That's why Jesus did what he did. He also ascended to heaven. And then the next thing that stuck out, pardon me, as I was thinking about this, um, as I was reminded about just the simple, timeless gospel of Jesus Christ, as it said, he sat down. And in in Hebrews 10, there's a really cool uh, passage that speaks of his sacrifice, but also the, the completeness of his sacrifice. So I'm just going to read a little bit of that to you um, as we just consider what the Lord has done. So uh, another great chapter to read for yourself later. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit, but I'll start in the very beginning and I'll skip down to the section I want to read. So this is Um, My Bible, Hebrews 10, it says, Christ sacrificed once and for all. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. So we talked about earlier how you would symbolically transfer your sin to an animal, and that would be enough for God to say, okay, by faith, you're doing this. I'm accepting that as a um, uh, remission of sin, right? Uh, I'm, actually, I'm struggling with the word here. There's, there's two R words. One is remission, and the other is, ah, okay, I'll skip that. But there's another R word that's not coming to mind right now. Um, so, okay. So there's all these sacrifices that didn't work. And so Jesus came and here's what it says. Um, I'm going to skip down to verse 11, although there's a lot of good stuff. I'd love to read it all, but I'm not just for the sake of time. Under the old covenant, the priest priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, Good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. So there's, that's why, why that stood out to me as I was thinking of that verse. And um, there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by one offering forever he made perfect those who are being made holy. And so just a reminder of the completeness and all sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, our past sins, maybe our present sins, and any future sins completely covered once and for all by the death of Christ on the cross. Praise God. He doesn't have to go back. When you mess up in the future, he already knew that you were going to mess up. And his sacrifice was so weighty, 
so incomparable, so complete that it covers that sin too. So that's a reason, a reason to, to praise God and a reason to, a reason to witness, a reason to give testimony, a reason to worship. And that's the other things I see in this little section. Um, if we go back to it after he climbed the hill and he sat down and that's where I kind of summarized his, um, his death. And it doesn't say he stood up, whatever, but his ascension, his resurrection. Again, I, this is just a reminder of the gospel, right? It isn't necessarily what this account teaches, but I just use it as a jumping off point to talk about the gospel. So, and then a vast crowd brought to him all these people who were lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. And they laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all, and the crowd was amazed. So we have these other people that know Jesus can do something for their lame, blind, <laughs> sorry, blind, lame, and crippled friends, and they bring them to the Lord. And isn't that our calling, right? Isn't that our calling to bring people to Jesus, right? As it says in Acts 1, chapter 8, you will be my witnesses, um, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what the Lord wants for his people to bring, to be witnesses that that, uh, share testimony and bring people to Jesus. And, uh, and then there's healing and transformation, right? There's healing and transformation. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, and I, I know a translation, I haven't, I haven't memorized this, this isn't what the NLT says, but if anyone be in Christ, he's a new, create, a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come, right? We are completely new. Um, I like to think of it or talk about it like a, a child being born, Right? Just like Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. When you place your faith in Christ, you are born again. You're new spiritually. And um, I think it's important to point out that you have to grow, right? Sometimes we can be super hard on ourselves as we think about, um, as we think about our failings, even after we've been saved. Why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Oh, am I saved? Yeah, you're saved, but you're a kid. Just like... You know, my little boy will, he's learning to crawl and sometimes he rolls over and bonks his head and, um, you know, he, sometimes he shakes a toy and he gets really excited and he hits himself in the face and then he cries. I mean, that kind of stuff is going to happen in our Christian walk. We, we're going to, because we're learning and we're growing. And God knows that. So be encouraged, Christians. Be encouraged. Um, it's, it is a process of growing up into maturity and all things in Christ. And uh, he is doing a work in you that he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's this healing and transformation of the people that are brought. And I wanted to point out too, just think about your own testimony. Think about before you knew the Lord and think about now. Because sometimes discouragement comes from us forgetting how far we've come, right? Forgetting how much the Lord's done. Forgetting what God has done in our lives and how he has powerfully delivered us and transformed us from where we used to be, right? I think about my life. I used to be a binge drinker, uh, woman chaser, a uh, lot of things that I'm not proud of today. Uh, but God delivered me from those things. And God will deliver you. And we see this, the crowd was amazed and that is true. God's work in our lives is amazing. It is amazing. It's amazing. And I like this. There's uh, the response to that. 
to those who hadn't been able to speak that were talking, the crippled that were made well, the lame that were were walking, the blind that could see again. It says they praised the God of Israel. And I think that's the next thing that I wanted to point out, the response to Jesus' work on the cross, which was completed, sufficient. Um, The response to the faithfulness of the people to bring people to the Lord and God's work in healing them. And then there's this testimony, right? And then finally is, is worship. There's worship. And you see that in heaven in Revelation. I, I, if I had more time, I would have counted all the different places where people were just pouring out worship to God as they're in his presence. But there's a lot. And uh, in Revelation 4, it starts with, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. And so uh, something else I wanted to point out, and this is, this is something I see. People come into church maybe late and they miss the worship. And please don't feel condemned if this is you. But a lot of people don't get the singing part. They're like, ah, it's the singing part. I don't get the singing part. I mean, yeah, it's nice to sing some songs or whatever. But, um, well, think of it like this. You are taking an opportunity to join in and responding to what God's done in your life. And uh, you are opening your mouth. You're giving him the breath. You give him the attention. You're putting all of your focus on the Lord. And you are saying things that are true about him. You're putting all of your focus on the Lord. You're joining with the hosts of heaven to praise the Lord. It's on the program in heaven. <laughs> so you better get used to it if you don't like it. Get used to it. Worship is important. So um, this little account uh, of Jesus' miracles which is a true, and I like to say account specifically. Sometimes we say Bible stories. Well, a story can be made up. It's not a story. It's an account. It is a factual thing that happened, and, uh, and this is the record. So we'll move on past that to Jesus feeds the 4,000. So just pick it up um, in verse 32. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry, or they will faint along the way. And I love Jesus' just practical compassion for people. Practical compassion. You know, these people, they want to be with me. And yeah, our time together is, is ending, but I can see they have this need. And the guy part of me thinks, well, I just healed these people. I don't want them to get banged up again on the way home. You know, let's keep this thing going. I don't know, that's kind of silly, but, um, but yeah, Jesus just, he can see their need, their practical need. And I wanted to encourage you guys, I wanted to remind you guys that Jesus does see your practical needs. He does see when you're hungry, when you're thirsty. He does see when you're heartbroken, when you have health problems. And he wants to step in. He wants to heal. And in some cases, as Jody pointed out, which I thought her testimony was, was awesome, some, in some cases, he just wants to make you stronger spiritually. He wants you to draw nearer to him through those things. But in this case, he, he wants to feed these people. I also want to point out here, it says, they've been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. So apparently these people's desire both to be healed, but then to stay with Jesus superseded everything else. Oh, we're running low on food. You know, check the little food basket. Ah, it's out, whatever. Jesus is here. And I love that. They left their homes, the comfort of their homes, their jobs, even their food behind to some degree. Their desire to be with Jesus just was greater than all those things. And, you know, God knows we can't survive without food forever. 
the world would say, how impractical, right? How stupid, how nonsensical. You're going to lose money walking away from your job. You're going to burn up money going to church, you know, burn up some gas, you know. But that's not a spiritual perspective, right? That's not acknowledging the person of Jesus. That's not giving honor to what you're going to receive in an eternal sense from being with him, being with his people and being in the word. And so these people, they caught that and they were blessed. And uh, I want to step into a quick plug for the week of prayer and fasting. And I think it's kind of ironic that um, we're talking about the feeding of the 4,000 and we're going to kind of dogleg into prayer and fasting. But yeah, it can seem really impractical not to eat for a week or a day or whatever. Why should I? Why does I, I remember first time I was thinking about fasting. I was like, what does God want me to do? Starve myself? Like, I don't understand. Like, how does this bring you any glory or honor? If my belly's rumbling at me and I'm grouchy and I get hangry at my coworkers. Ah, you know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things. And Pastor Chris, what I love about this lead up is that he's been preparing all these messages to try and get us ready uh, spiritually and mentally for participating in that, thinking about the reasons that we pray. And, I'm, and he was going to talk about, I think, some of the reasons that we fast. Um, and I'm sure that we'll, we'll hear that at some point. But um, and I don't mean to steal his thunder. But I thought about this thing. Um, if I turn back a few pages to Matthew 6, a verse. And this is more of a meditation than an authoritative um, point here. But um, Matthew 6, verse 31 to 33. And here's what it says. And this kind of just touches on the idea that uh, maybe fasting isn't practical. Oh, I would say it is very much practical. Here we go. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? Now listen. This is that, that now listen thing is me. Okay, now back to 32. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. They dominate their thoughts. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So I think one thing, one reason to fast um, is because we can be, our thoughts can be dominated by a lot of things, right? Be dominated by food. Be dominated by, what does he say in the beginning of that? He says, don't be anxious, right? Or don't worry. Be dominated by worries. You know, one, one blessing, one huge blessing of fasting is that, man, you haven't got a lot of extra energy for worries. <laughs> you haven't got a lot of extra energy for much of anything, right? So uh, I remember being in the office and I'd be all stressed about this or that. Oh, what am I going to do? What if this person calls? I don't have everything ready. But when I was fasting, I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know about any of that. I just know lunch is coming soon. I'm going to chill with a cup of tea. I'm going to pray because I don't have any energy to be worried today. I don't have any energy. I, I am thinking about food, but I'm going to set my mind purposely on the Lord. So I think that's one of the great benefits of, of fasting um, is, is to not allow other things to dominate your thoughts. So um, I thought I might talk about, too, some of the things that fasting is not. Fasting is not earning holiness points, Right? We're, we're made righteous in Christ. Um, we can never, righteousness can never be added to our account. We don't get more righteous. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, it doesn't work like a video game. I leveled up on righteousness. No. 
You have Christ's righteousness. It's all the righteousness you're ever going to get. It's all the righteousness you're ever going to need. It's undiminished, right? So that's important. Um, it's not earning indulgences to sin. So this was an old, and the idea of indulgences was a practice, um, actually a corrupt and, um, a corrupt and heretical practice of, uh, of the church, uh, in times past of the Roman Catholic Church. They would, people that had money would be like, hey, I want to go to a party. And so, you know, what if I, what if I were to put a few more alms in the alms basket? Can you write me a certificate that says like, you know, Marcus Handy is entitled to, you know, do these sins for this period of time. And then that was the kind of the arrangement, um, pay for sin. And uh, God would understand because you gave extra money. That's not the way fasting works. That's not the way worship works. That's not the way any of the Christian experience works. It's not about works or earning uh, credit, sin credit or whatever. Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins. So we don't have to worry about that. But what he asks us to do is to repent of our sins and follow him, right? And so we don't earn extra uh, holiness points. We don't earn uh, the ability to sin and get away with it. So that's, that's important. Uh, I'll also say what the word means. Um, I did look it up in Hebrew, and I wrote like a paraphrase, but I'm going to mess it up, so I'm going to skip it. But the word in, um, in Greek um, and in Hebrew essentially means a voluntary abstention to abstain, a voluntary abstention from food. It's, it, as an expression, it, it's meant to declare your need for God. It's meant to be paired with, um, with active prayer. And, uh, and it results in, in you being humbled. That's the other thing I wanted to say about the experience of fasting is that it's pretty humbling when you don't eat. You start to think, man, I'm feeling pretty, pretty thin. I'm feeling pretty weak. I could, this goes on, I could, I could kick the bucket, you know? And not a lot left here. I'm, I'm feeling pretty mortal. Well, amen, I think that's part of it. I think being humbled in the experience of fasting is part of fasting. It's recognizing your need for the Lord in a way that's tangible. Sometimes circumstances will do that to us, put us on our knees, and we just know that we can't get out of this situation without the Lord. But isn't it great when we can say, you know what? My circumstances might be okay right now, but I'm going to set aside this time. I'm going to humble myself and seek the Lord. And uh, so that's another thing that fasting has accomplished personally for me is, is uh, humbling me. And I would encourage you guys to participate. And I think Eric did a great job just talking about, hey, you know, just because we're fasting the whole week doesn't mean you have to fast every day. Um, you know, you, you need to prayerfully consider what your level of participation is going to be. Uh, the first time I fasted, I was like, okay, I got to fast. I got to fast all day or it doesn't count. Right? So that's not true, but that's what I thought. So I, uh, I sat there and I watched TV. I tried to distract myself all day uh, with fasting. And then I went to bed and I woke up at 3 a.m. And I'm like, oh, it's past, past midnight. I made it. I made it the full day. And then I ate everything in my cupboard. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I mean, this is my, my advice. You don't have to take it. But my advice would be to start small. My advice would be to maybe set aside a meal if you haven't fasted before. Set aside a meal like uh, lunch or breakfast, whatever. Um, dedicate that time to prayer. And then, you know, if, if you're, you're feeling like the Lord would have you go another meal or, or whatever, um, do that too. But, uh, you know, don't, don't uh, paint yourself into a corner by, by making it not count in your mind unless you do all this stuff. Like I said, it's not about doing that stuff. It's about seeking the Lord.
okay? That's my plug for fasting injected into this uh, (laughs) Jesus feeds the 4,000. So these people, back to the text, these people had this desire to be with God that superseded their desire for food even. And so Jesus has compassion on them. He doesn't want them to faint along the way. And so the disciples replied, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? The point, I think some, some people would think, well, what, um, yeah, yeah, okay. The point I think Jesus was making, one of the points anyways, was that, uh, you know, by asking, by telling them to do something that was impossible for them, was to just remind them that, that, uh, that he was the solution. He was the solution. As we'll see here in the next, um, the next little section, in, Jesus asked them, how much bread do you have? And they replied, seven loaves and a few small fish. It's interesting that they wouldn't remember, if, if you flip back a few pages in your Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, at least we don't know what the exact time between the two events was, but that was fairly recent. It's a couple of chapters back that Jesus fed 5,000 people in another area with a few loaves and a few fish. So why wasn't that registering? Why instead of they say, this, you know, essentially they're saying like, this is impossible for us. Where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Jesus, who made a bunch of food out of nothing before, could do it again. You know? And uh, so I guess my one point I wanted to make was that they had forgotten uh, at least, um, at least what Jesus had done, but but maybe also who he was a little bit. You know what I mean? It's one thing to say, yeah, I know Jesus is Lord and Savior, Jesus is Messiah. It's great, and and you know we believe that intellectually, we know that, but to forget that he lives forever, that he's seated on a throne in glory, that he makes intercession for us. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews. He's praying for us, Father. I don't count that sin against them. It's covered by my blood. You know, we have this special relationship and that he wants to intervene in our lives and he wants to lead and guide us and, and we can go to him when we face impossible situations. And here they're in another impossible situation. They got 4,000 people that are hungry. Jesus says, I want to feed them. And they're like, I don't even know what to do. This is impossible. But they have the one right there who makes the impossible possible, right? That's what Eric was saying. The one that can make a way where there is no way, but they'd sort of forgotten Maybe they didn't want to ask him. I don't know. So I want to take a moment and just read a little passage from Colossians uh, that reminds us who Jesus is, lest we forget like the disciples. So here's what Colossians 1, 15. I'm going to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I might read down as far as 22. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything and was created. Sorry, he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see, he made the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For in God, 
for, sorry, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So just to summarize that, he is God. He created the world. He is supreme and preeminent. In the, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. He is, he is deity. Don't forget about Jesus. Don't forget how big he is. Don't forget how powerful he is. Don't forget that you can ask him for stuff. Why? Because, because he owes you? Or, or, or No, it's because you have this great relationship with him. You place your faith in him. And he loves you. He died for you. He wants fellowship with you. Don't forget that. Don't forget to ask him. So the disciples, they answer. They say seven loaves and a few small fish. Um, how much do you have? Just a little, not enough. That was more or less what they said. Still impossible. I don't have enough to feed these people. We don't have enough. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. So Jesus takes charge of the situation. Even though they didn't ask him to, he does. And he, that's the case with us too. Even if we forget to pray to him, he's always in charge. But so much better when we recognize and we ask him to step in, right? He's the one that wanted to do that work. And he's the one that's going to accomplish that work. And he's going to accomplish, he's going to accomplish a work in us. So um, he took the seven loaves and the fish and he thanked God for them. He broke them into pieces and he gave them to the disciples who distributed the food to the crowd. So he takes what they had, which is insufficient. He broke it, thanked God for it, and he multiplied it. And what did the disciples do? They just handed it out. And that's the same way he wants to use us and the things he's given us, right? What we have is insufficient. We're insufficient of ourselves. But he's willing to take what we have. He's willing to, to break it, and sometimes he needs to break us. <laughs> what Jody was saying, sometimes he needs to improve our character um, through hardship until before we're ready to be used. And he's able to multiply that, to take what, what normally wouldn't have been effective or wouldn't have been enough and multiply that and feed all these people. I wanted to point out too, it says Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. I like that. Um, I was thinking about waiting too. Sometimes the only thing there is for us to do as believers is just sit and wait, right? It is the hardest. We ask God to take care of us. We ask God to, enter, to answer our prayers. And sometimes there's no, no immediate answer that's forthcoming. Waiting, as much as I don't like to wait, I'm just like anybody else, I don't like to wait. But waiting is a part of getting stronger in the Lord. It's a part of the testing and strengthening of our faith. I always used to, like, puzzle at that song. There's a song, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. I'm like, how does that work? Why, why, does my, why do I get stronger when I have to wait around? I just get annoyed. No, no, no. <laughs> you might get annoyed, but that's not what's supposed to happen. What's supposed to happen is as you're waiting for God to answer, you're continually directing your thoughts back to the Lord and you're continuing to hope in the Lord so that when he comes through, whether it be the answer you wanted, whether he changed things up, whether he says no, that you will be tuned into what he's saying, what he's doing, and you will, you will know, you will know God's goodwill, which is, um, which is good, pleasing, and perfect, says um, Romans 2, sorry, Romans 12, 2. 
So these people are sitting there waiting to receive something. Jesus is doing all the work. He took the insufficient offering of the disciples to feed them. It says they all ate as much as they wanted, and so they were satisfied, which is great because Jesus is the only person that can satisfy us. We, we like to think that we can be satisfied with all kinds of things, relationships, food. Uh, maybe some people have done the drugs and alcohol thing, right? We like to think we can be satisfied with material possessions. We like to think that our lives can be made whole by external things that are passing away. The reality is that Jesus Christ is the only one that can satisfy our soul because he's the only one that can guarantee eternal life. He's the only one that can affect the completion of the work that God wants to do in humanity, which is to restore um, restore people that have fallen into sin, right? We inherited this condition of sin from Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. When he sinned, it was passed down like a genetic trait to every man, woman, um, and child. And... Uh, and because that's in our very nature, our fabric, we also commit acts of sin, right? So there's a twofold problem. One is that we're sinners, and the other is that we do sin, right? Both of those things are, and the, and the result of that, it says um, in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Two kinds of death, physical death and eternal death, the second death. Those are the things that we inherited. We inherited sin, we inherited two deaths, but... For Jesus, because of Jesus' death on the cross, that he died for us, right? And uh, like, any, like any awesome, I don't know, like any awesome general, he saw what our greatest need would be to be saved from the eternal death, right? Our greatest need would not, would not, was that we would not spend eternity in hell, in judgment for our sins. Our greatest need would be restored to fellowship with the living God. So that's what his death on the cross accomplished. And, and a lot of people get confused and they're like, well, why do people still die? Well, people still die physically, but people that have placed their faith in Christ do not die eternally. And when he comes again, and after we've experienced the resurrection, then we will not die physically anymore. So there's a priority in, in the way that he was doing business. So they all ate as much as they wanted and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. So there's enough for them too. There were 4,000 men who were fed that day in addition to the women and children. And then Jesus sent the people home and he got into a boat and crossed over the region of Madigan. Oh man. I got to be careful about this. So this is, uh, it is scripturally sound. I don't know if this is what the passage teaches, but I will say this. It says that there were 4,000 men that were fed that day in addition to women and children. And the other passage also just counts the men. And so I was like puzzling on that. I was thinking, well, why just count the men? Was it just like you needed a quick count and you weren't sure what to do, so we just count the dudes? Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say, actually. But I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about a principle, um, the principle of godly leadership in, the, in a household that, that belongs to the men. And before I do that, I'll say that a lot of the commentators were like, well, it wasn't a feeding of 4,000. It was actually more. If you think there was one guy, there's probably one woman for every man and maybe one child. So that was maybe more around 12,000. Man, who knows? There were more than 4,000 people there. But why just focus on the men? Maybe they set them down in groups of um, clans or households. 
Maybe that's just where they were naturally. And they're like, well, how many men does your clan have? I don't know. This is all speculation, so please don't burn me at the stake for being a heretic. But the biblical point I want to make here, um, by pointing out that, that only the men were counted, was, was that men have a responsibility to bring their families before the Lord. Men, fathers and husbands, that's, that is a responsibility that we bear. Our, our duty before the Lord is, is to bring our, our wives especially, but then our kids before Jesus in prayer to be, uh, a, that speaks to the priestly duties, right, uh, of the believer, to be the high priest of the home, um, to, uh, I think Steve, Stephen gave a teaching on, was it Deuteronomy a while back, where it talks about when you talk about the Lord, when you rise up and you lay down, and just the responsibility of the father to be the one that's the initiator in reminding the family about spiritual things and keeping the household focused on the things of the Lord. And that is our responsibility as men. Um, so maybe, maybe the men were counted as a, as a commendation, as a commendation for bringing their families before Jesus. I say maybe. But that is a scriptural point um, that I wanted to make. I, I thought of Ephesians 5, and I, I won't read it just for sake of time, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. It talks about how the, the, the man is to be the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then there's a passage about submission, which uh, Chris has talked about. And a lot of the guys are like, yeah, submit. But then it talks about um, what the man's supposed to do. He's supposed to love his wife selflessly, right? So the purpose of you being the head of the household, men, is not to, um, is not to be a tyrant, but it is to show selfless love. And part of that selfless love, it says, is to wash your wife in the water of the word. To be encouraging your wife with the word of God. Be reminding her that she's valuable, that she's loved, that Jesus died for her. Um, be encouragement to her when she's down. And, you know, I, I think there's, I mean, I, I can say this, I know between my wife and I, there's also a mutual encouragement, you know. She has thoughts. She has uh, consideration of the word. And when I, when I take that step and I do... Um, reminder of the things that are true in God's word, she often will respond and say, oh, and I was thinking about this, and I'll, I'll walk away blessed too. But um, we are to be the initiators, and we, we bear the responsibility, men, of leading our households to Jesus. So don't be condemned if you haven't been doing that, or this, that's a temptation when you hear God's word. You hear it maybe, for some, it's an encouragement. For others, it's like, oh, I feel, oh, an arrow in the heart. I haven't been doing that. Okay, well, Okay, maybe that's some Holy Spirit conviction, but that's not meant to be guilt, right? We're not supposed to walk around like Eeyore, oh, I guess I'll never be a good husband, right? I guess I'll never, no, it's okay. Jesus loves you, he's gonna complete the work that he did in Christ Jesus, so uh, get up, gird up your loins and, you know, do something small. Can we pray together, honey? You know, can we, uh, I, I was reading the word today, this is, what I, this is what stuck out to me, it could be that simple and build on it from there. The Lord's good. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to have the worship team come up as I, as I wrap this up, um, as I get to the final point that I wanted to make. Before I do that, I'll just talk about So there's, there's two uh, feedings in the Bible. I thought it was important to point this out. Um, there's the feeding of the 5,000, and there's the feeding of the 4,000. I just wanted to provide a quick contrast. Um, so the feeding of the 5,000 is thought to be a largely 
Jewish audience based on where they were. Um, 5,000, the number 5 in, in the Bible speaks of grace. And 12 speaks of Israel. So based on the location and the number of leftover um, baskets of bread and fish, a lot, most people think that the, the feeding of the 5,000 was a largely Jewish crowd. That's been the speculation anyway. And then here we have um, the feeding of the 4,000. Four uh, is a number of corruption, which I, I believe could, could symbolize the Gentile world that walked away from the Lord largely. But seven, the number of leftover fragments of baskets, speaks of completion, right? So seven days God created the world, that the whole process was completed in seven days. And I thought of uh, John ten fourteen, where Jesus talks about sort of the twofold aspect of his flock. And I think this, the, the two feedings are, uh, they point out an important point. Um, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. They know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. And so um, I believe those two miracles were recorded purposefully, um, not just to demonstrate his power twice, but, but to identify that Jesus would be God both of the Jew and the Gentiles. He would be the, the one, the Savior of both the Jew and the Gentile. As it says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Okay, but that, this, that's not the final point, though. And I, I think I'm pulling a Pastor Chris. It's funny, we, we joke around in the back. I'm usually in the back with Sam, and he's usually like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's his final point. Okay, it's going to be another 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Pastor Chris can just ignore this part. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyways, and they came up here super fast. I was a little bit surprised how fast they came up here. Uh, yeah, so God's going to give me some grace. But the final, the final thing I wanted to roll back to, and this is meant to be an encouragement, um, the verse here where uh, the disciples replied, uh, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? So it's impossible for us to feed these people. And Jesus asked them, well, how much, how much bread do you have? That's the title of the message, and that's the final point. How much bread do you have? And uh, we talked about our insufficiency, right? We talked about how we're insufficient in ourselves. I wanted to remind you guys, uh, we know we're not sufficient in our righteousness to, you know, to earn eternal life or anything like that, but uh, there's a lot of times in life where we're, we're not enough, right? We're not enough. And Jesus is like, oh, you guys will never get this done. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, doesn't run him down, doesn't discourage him. But instead he asks him, how much bread do you have? They have very little. They have very little to offer. But their sufficiency for this situation, their ability to feed these people, was, was contingent on the Lord. And uh, this is 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. It says, we are confident of all this because of our great trust in our God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything in our own, uh, anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not written of laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And so um, they, they had a few fish. They had a, um, a little bit of bread. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. But 
The Lord made it enough. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, at 1 Corinthians uh, 4, chapter 2. Well, I, I had that one memorized, just in a different version. But it says, it's required that a steward be found faithful or a manager be found faithful. Somebody who's in charge of something. So what do we have charge of? What do we have charge of? That's where I wanted to end. What do we have charge of? I, we have charge of our time, some of us. We have charge of some time anyway, maybe not all of it. We have charge of our money. We have charge of resources. We have charge of relationships. But a lot of times we look at what we have and we think, well, how can I make a difference? How can I do something? It's, it's too big of a task for me. How can I make any kind of a difference for the Word of God? Maybe if I had a million dollars. Maybe if I had the fortune of Jeff Bezos or Bezos. I got corrected by the junior high. I don't care how to pronounce his name. But if I was a rich guy, then I could do something. But now I can't do anything. Or maybe if I had, you know, if I had every weeknight off, then I could serve the Lord. You know, we make up these objections to, to, to responding to what God might be calling us to do based on the fact that we don't have enough. Guess what? You're never going to have enough. You're never going to have enough time. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough talent. Um, but it's the Lord who wants to take those things that aren't enough and use those things for his glory. And uh, I, so here's my point of encouragement. And there's a lady who's not, she may not be in here. I think she's serving. But uh, she, she felt led by the Lord to serve in the kids' ministry, but she was super intimidated. She's like, I'm not a very good teacher. I don't really feel comfortable. I'm not sure if the kids would like me. I feel like that's what the Lord's pushing me to do, but I just know I'm not enough, and I, I, I don't want to even start because I feel like I'd be a failure. And, uh, and so, you know, we encouraged her to try. You know, okay, well, why don't you step out and just see? And uh, what's been awesome is... Um, been awesome how God's really met this lady back there. You know, he's provided the things that she thought she couldn't do or was impossible for her. God's met her. God's, God's given her like a curriculum that she likes. Um, there's just a lot of things that have enabled, that are enabling her to serve back there. And uh, this isn't to make people feel guilty about not serving in kids ministry, although we do have a great need back there. And I will say this, um, if you're you're 12 years old, you can serve as a helper back there. Uh, my daughter's back there ministering to kids, which is awesome. And I'm thankful to God for that. I don't take any credit for that. That's the Lord. Um, all that to say is there's ways to serve in this church and there's ways to serve in this community. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you have to do this or you have to do that. No, I'm going to let the Lord lead you in those things. But I want to encourage you um, when you think about not being enough or not having enough to... Let the Lord be enough. You know what I mean? Let the Lord be enough in, and be, be obedient to his leading in the direction that he's leading you to. Right? That's my, my final encouragement to you guys as, as we worship the Lord. How much bread do you have? What, what do you have? And, and let the Lord lead you in, in your service. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at coastline. You know, there, maybe there's, there's ladies who have started Bible studies. Um, there's a pregnancy resource center. Uh, what is God leading you to do? What is, what is God calling you? He may not answer that question until after the week of prayer and fasting. I don't know. Uh, but you may already know and you're just holding back because you think you're not enough. But I would encourage you, yeah, you're not. You're not enough. You don't have much bread. You don't have many fish. But, but God has it. And the Lord's waiting to meet you there. He's waiting to take what you have and he's waiting to multiply that for his glory. So don't, 
Don't make the mistake of forgetting who he is. Um, Don't make the mistake of forgetting how much power he has. Don't make the mistake of holding back because you're not enough. He's enough. So thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to worship you. And I pray that you would just be speaking to us um, as we um, lift up our voices to you one more time. Also, Lord, I pray for, for anybody that uh, needs prayer for anything, and it doesn't even have to be related to this message, uh, would, would stand up and come forward and uh, just pick out somebody, pray with them. God, get encouraged. And Lord, let you be glorified. Let the name of Jesus be preeminent in this place. Amen.